Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 12 of Revelation, where we've been establishing that the church did not replace Israel and that though Satan accuses us, we are justified in Christ, our rock. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Another thing I'm looking into, and I just heard this from Pastor Tom when he was here, but he said he just read an article. He was going to send it to me. He hasn't gotten it to me yet. But he said that he just read a recent article. It said that the Jordanians are working on reestablishing a water system into Petra again. Interesting, isn't it? So building the cisterns and everything back to the original form so it can collect water and such, um, that there would be water available there. Here's the bottom line. We don't know for certain that Petra is the place where God will be taking them. There's nothing found in Scripture to specifically say that it is, but it does seem to be a highly probable location. But regardless of, of whether or not this is the actual location, what we do know from this passage in Revelation 12 is that there will be quite literally a person persecution of the Jews that will be taking place, a persecution that will be executed against them by Satan himself through the fiery red dragon who is Antichrist, who will be waging war against them with his ultimate goal to completely destroy them. But once again, what Satan desires to do will be limited by what? By what God permits, only by what God permits. And it is not God's intent for the Jews to be destroyed. It never has been, and it never will be. In fact, he will once again powerfully intervene on their behalf, and Satan, as powerful a force as he will be in the world in that day, won't be able to touch them. And that's the point even when it comes to Petra, because a lot of people will question, well, if Petra is the place that the Jews are going to flee to, then everybody knows about it, and we're all aware of it because I They've heard Bible studies on it. Well, then Satan knows it too. And it doesn't mean if Satan knows it that it negates all the protective features of Petra since we know it and Satan knows it so he could get in there. But they missed the point that it's really not about Petra providing so much of a physical defensibility as it is about the place that God will supernaturally protect them. I mean, yeah, Petra is a very defensible place. It absolutely is. But in the end, it won't be about the Jews being able to fend off Antichrist by hiding in some fortress-like structure. It's going to be about the supernatural protection that they're going to enjoy from the Lord himself in that day. They'll be protected simply because God will choose to protect them, just like he did when they were fleeing from the Egyptians during the Exodus. Make no mistake about it. During this future time period on earth, God will be stepping in and he will be intervening in a very powerful way on behalf of his people, Israel. And even though he will allow Satan the authority to touch some of them, because we know that we studied some of that already. Zechariah 14, one through four tells us all about that, you know, but, but at the same time, he's promising that he's personally going to intervene. He's going to personally keep them, that he's going to personally prove to be faithful and true to them. And here during this time in the wilderness, it'll be the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises that he's made to them. And it's going to culminate when, when this remnant turns to Jesus as their Messiah and he returns and finishes the fight for them. And it will be Jesus, as we will see later in our study of Revelation, who will come and finish the fight on their behalf. 
Okay, so you can choose to believe it's Petra or not. It doesn't matter. Just know this, that God's going to protect them in that day. Amen. Let's look on at verse 7. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So he tells us now here that he sees war breaking out in heaven involving this this dragon and another character that he introduces to us in this end time drama. And that other character is Michael. Now, this is a clear reference to the archangel Michael. And I say this because some have speculated that this is nothing more than a symbolic reference to Jesus Christ. They believe this because this verse refers to his angels who fight with him. They say that only Jesus has angels under his authority and under his control like this. But, but that view isn't scripturally correct. It's not scripturally correct. We know from previous verses that Satan is also a lead angel of sorts, a demonic lead angel. And he has angels, demons, fallen angels under his control, right? So why would anyone find it hard to believe that the archangel Michael doesn't have such authority over angels that are assigned to him in some way, shape, or form? There's no reason to assume this away. And implied in being an archangel is such authority, that he's an archangel. He's over others. So based on that reality, as well as some of the other things we see associated with what's happening here, we can safely conclude that Michael, that this Michael John sees is none other than the archangel Michael himself. It's worth noting that the archangel Michael shows up on several, several other occasions in Scripture. In Jude, we find the archangel Michael contending with Satan over what? Anybody remember? The body of Moses. Fighting over the body of Moses. We talked about that when we talked about the two witnesses. I believe it could very well, you know, be one of the passages that gives credence to the idea that, that Moses could be one of the two witnesses who will show up during the tribulation. I don't know, but it could be. But we do know that he's contending with Satan over the body of Moses. And we also find him referred to a number of times in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 10, he is the angel who struggles with the prince of Persia, the, the demonic spirit, as he was sent to deliver an answer to Daniel's prayers. He shows up again in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, where we find him playing a role in end-time events being prophesied by Daniel. Consider what we're told there. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, at, the, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now, that's an interesting verse, because when you read that verse and you think about what we're studying this morning, they line right up don't they? Here he's referring to the future time when, when this time of tribulation would be going on with God's people. Clearly a reference to the time of Jacob's trouble, which is the time of the tribulation that we see in the New Testament. And here we are in Revelation 12, where we see this Michael standing up to fight on their behalf. It matches exactly with what we're dealing with here in Revelation 12. This reference in Daniel correlates perfectly to this period in history when Satan, through the person of Antichrist, will be turning his focus on the Jews and waging a three-and-a-half-year war of elimination against them. And Michael will be stepping in on their behalf and, 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 and protecting them. But John goes on to tell us the outcome of Michael's involvement. And here's what he says. Look again. 
at the latter part of verse 8, it says, or rather the latter part of verse 7, it says, and, and I'll read the whole thing. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth and his angels were cast out with him. So what John now describes happening is that at the midpoint of the tribulation, we know that it's the midpoint because of the events associated with the Jews that we're studying here. There will be this war taking place in heaven between Michael and Satan, and Michael will prevail. Michael will prevail, and Satan and his demonic host will be cast out of heaven for good, for good. Now, some people confuse this defeat and fall uh, of Satan to a different fall also addressed in Scripture. You might recall in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus told his disciples, Luke 10, 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And many people mistakenly think that Jesus is referring to the same fall that we're now discussing here in Revelation 12, but it's not the same fall. In Luke 10, Jesus is talking about Satan's original fall. He's talking about the fall that came when he initially rebelled against God, a fall that we know took place early in creation. But here in Revelation 12, we know that this can't be referring to the original fall because here we find that with this fall, Satan no longer has access to heaven. Now, follow my logic here. After his initial fall in the garden, we know that he still had access Limited access, but he still had access to heaven. How do we know that? Job. The book of Job makes that clear. Job 1, verses 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So even though Satan fell, just as Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18, that he did, Satan's access to heaven, although limited, wasn't prohibited. God still allows him access for a lot of reasons. But in this moment, when Revelation 12 plays out in heaven, at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan will be completely thrown out and he'll be barred from ever entering heaven again. He'll no longer have access in any form. Do you know that there are actually four different falls of Satan described to us in the scriptures? Do you know that? There's the original fall that we just discussed when Satan fell from a glorified state to a profane state, even though Jesus makes reference to it uh, in Luke 10, 18, Ezekiel 28, 14 through 16 is a passage that really gives the full description of that fall. Ezekiel 28, 14 through 16 describes that in detail. Secondly, there will be the final fall of Satan from heaven that we're now considering here in Revelation 12. Then there will be Satan's fall from the earth into bondage in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And then finally, number four, there will be Satan's final fall after his release from the, fit, from the pit, and, and he loses the final battle against Christ, and he's cast into the lake of fire. And we'll get to that in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. So there's really four falls of Satan, if you will. You know, one would think that Satan would get the hint. You know, you'd think he'd get the hint, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Why? Because of pride. It's pride. It's pride because pride blinds him to the reality of things. Proverbs 16, 18 is absolutely true. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Satan is the perfect example of this truth in Proverbs. 
Be careful of pride when it comes to your own life because I would warn you that it can be just as damaging in your life. He's the picture of it. And yet sometimes when I look at my own life and pride creeps in, you know, I'd love to look at you guys and say, you know what, I'm so, I'm so proud that I'm so humble. <laughs> you know, and that would probably be a true statement. I'm proud that I'm humble. Yeah, right. You know, but in those moments of pride, I know in that moment, you know, it's not just what it's doing to me, but it's what I'm reflecting. I become a reflection of Satan, not a reflection of God. I become more of a reflection of Satan. Be careful with pride because pride can and it will lead to spiritual devastation in your life. And it can and it will lead to a spiritual fall, even for you as a believer. Be very careful. Learn from the example of Satan. Don't be dumb like Satan right? Don't be dumb like Satan. That sounds like a good meme. But here in this moment after a struggle with Michael and his angels, Satan will be defeated and he and his angels are finally, uh, will be cast completely from heaven. Look on at verse 10 as it describes more of this victorious moment for us. Verse 10 says, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And John now hears this loud proclamation of praise breaking forth in heaven. It's not just the praise of angels, but it's, it's also the praise of the redeemed human beings that are in the throne room of God in this moment. And what are they praising God for? For putting an end to Satan's evil work in heaven. For putting an end to Satan's evil work in heaven. And what was the evil work Satan was doing in heaven? He tells us in verse 10, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. This is what Satan does in heaven. It's what he, he uses to his access to do. He appears before God and he accuses you and me. Oh, he accuses God too. You know, the whole study we did on the book of Job, you know, I, I hope that didn't leave you guys with PTSD who went through that. You know, everybody has this vision of the book of Job. I'm going to find answers. And you come to the book of Job and, and you don't necessarily find the answers you've been looking for, but there are answers in the book of Job. Because the book of Job isn't so much about you as it is about God. And it's about God being accused by Satan. Oh, Satan accuses Job. But he's using Job indirectly to accuse God. Job wouldn't serve you if you didn't make him. Job wouldn't do these things if you didn't give him. Job wouldn't be these things if it weren't for this. What it really comes down to is Satan making accusations against God and saying, you're really not a good God. You're really not the God you claim to be. The only way you can get people to serve you is by doing things for them or by making them do it. And the rest of the the unfolding of that account is about God dealing with Satan. It's about proving himself true to who he really is. Yep, Job's life gets affected by that. And in the end, we do learn a lot from Job. But don't miss the real point of that entire book. But this is what Satan does. He stands in heaven and he accuses us, but he accuses us to get a God at the same time. You see? He hurls accusations before God about you and about the things that you and I do. He slanders us. He defames our name. He accuses us of being unworthy of salvation and redemption. He continually reminds God of every sinful thing that we engage in. And he probably does it in a manner that says, you know what? If you've really redeemed them, how comes they keep on doing this? If you really have power of redemption, how comes they haven't changed? How becomes they... This is exactly what we find him doing in the book of Job. He comes accusing Job before God, and he does the same with you and me day in and day out. And here's the reality. 
even though I'm sure he tells lies about us and twists the truth, Scripture tells us he's what? The father of lies, right? So we, although we know he does lie for the most part, I'm just going to tell you right up front, his, his accusations against us are oftentimes mostly true. They're mostly true. They are. We, we commit sin all the time, sinful behaviors all the time. And the things that he defames us with before God are things that we've done. We give him the ammunition for the accusations that he makes against us before God. The truth is that when Satan stands before God and he accuses us of being unworthy of salvation, unworthy of redemption, undeserving of God's love, he is 100% right. 100% right. We are absolutely unworthy of all of these things. But here's the good news. It don't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If we're in Jesus Christ, God doesn't hold these things to our account. And no matter how much Satan might, might, might rail against us, no matter what true accusations he might hurl against us before God, God doesn't entertain any of it. He doesn't hold the truths of his accusations against us. Scripture promises us this. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. I love this, this psalm. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know why it's east from west and not north to south? It's north to south wouldn't work, right? If you go east to west, you never get there. If you go north to south, you do, right? Isaiah 118. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall still stain you even though I've forgiven you. No, it doesn't say that. It says they shall be as white as snow, though they are like crimson. They shall be as wool. Does this mean that you and I are going to live perfectly? No, that verse isn't saying that. This verse is talking about what he's giving to us, what he's imputed to us, what he sees. 1 John 1.7 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Man, I claim that one every day. I stand on that verse every day. Hebrews 9, 14. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Are you unworthy of salvation? Yep. Uh, uh, do you commit sin? Yep. Uh, should, 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 should you be punished for what you did? Yep. But it doesn't matter. Because God has cleansed us. He's cleansed us so that we could serve him. You see, he did it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There is no greater verse of what God has done for us than that verse alone. We may not have been all of these things, but I guarantee you there's some aspect of that. And the list can go on because you can look elsewhere of the things that, that we were in and of ourselves apart from Christ. Now, certainly here, this idea of justification and washing doesn't mean that we're to continue on in these things. The idea is we won't. We're not going to. We, we still may at times fall in sin, but we're not going to be what we once were because of what Christ has done in us. 
But what we have, the standing we have, has nothing to do with it. It has all to do with what he's done. I could quote other scriptures like these to you all morning long. Scriptures that promise that if you are in Christ, your sins are covered by his blood. Your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. So you see, each and every time Satan, he stands up before God and makes an accusation against you. Jesus stands up and he says, true, but irrelevant. Because he or she is covered in my blood. True, but irrelevant. Because I've done this for him. This is truth for us, folks. Now. It's also important for to understand that Satan's evil ministry of being the accuser is, is two-directional. It's two-directional. He accuses you before God, but he also accuses you directly. Sometimes that's the worst part. We don't always know what he's saying to the Lord. We know what he's saying to us. He comes and he whispers accusations in your ears as well. So when you find yourself all guilted out over your past, that's that Satan's whispering those accusations in your ear. When you find yourself questioning your salvation because you see all of your sinful imperfections or because of some sin you stumbled in at some point in your life, maybe even now, that's Satan whispering accusations in your ear. That's all it is. Or when you find yourself under condemnation, that's Satan whispering in your ear ear. I'm not saying that there's not a conviction that arises at times in your heart as a result of of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. He most certainly does bring conviction to us for sin, but 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 if you're engaging in sin and the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. John 16:8 makes that clear. That's his ministry, right? And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment, but there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. And if you're in Christ, condemnation never comes from God. Never. And, and when condemnation rises in your heart and in your mind, that's not the work of the Lord. But it's Satan whispering his accusations in your ear, and you don't have to give ear to it. You don't have to give ear to it. What you need to do instead is to claim the covering of Jesus' blood over your life. And if the accusations are coming because you're walking in unrepentant sin, if the accusations are true, then get your sin under the covering of the blood. Repent. Get in front of the Lord and ask forgiveness and repent of it. Be honest with God about your sin. Repent of it and and claim the cleansing power that Jesus' promises to bring to you if you do this. Claim the reality of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then give no ear to Satan's allegations against you because you don't have to. In fact, what you can do, if you would like to, you could always say to, well, thanks, Satan, for reminding me of what I was just doing. I really need to get that over to Jesus, so get that under his blood. Thanks so much for reminding me. You see, you don't have to give ear to what he's done and what he's saying. That's his evil ministry. But this is what Satan does. He's the accuser of the brethren. But there is a day coming when this scripture will become reality, a day when Satan will be completely barred from heaven, a day when he will no longer have the ability that he now has to bring these accusations against anyone ever again, at least not in the throne room of of heaven. And so here in our text, Michael and his angels will be waging this war with Satan, defeating him by bringing these things against him. And verse 13 is going to go on to tell us exactly what they're going to be bringing against him that's going to make all the difference in the world. He tells us, and we're going to break here in a moment, he says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He 
gave birth, you know, he, 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 he persecuted the woman. And so here we see this turning point. What we see happening is that as he's cast out, he goes after the nation of Israel with a vengeance, which is that midpoint of the tribulation. It is Antichrist war against the Jews that will come. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.